that does seem to be the view that it's unthinkable to a leftist that a trans woman would commit a male-like act in any space or against any woman. And I think to people feminists, to anyone that's kind of allied with us, it's just absolutely baffling why they believe that. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and with me is the great ally of women, Ricky Albright. Hello. Oh, you're just going to accept that, are you? <laughs> I am, yeah. <laughs> That's good. Well, actually, I thought about it before. I was like, do you know, you've probably spoken to more feminists and, you know, campaigners for women and girls than anybody you know. Even the people, oh, yeah. even the good women that you know who feel like they're they're in the fight. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I've spoken, yeah, to more, more feminists than, than most people out there. Yeah. Um, see, the message is, people, unlikely heroes. All right? <laughs> yeah. So, well, today we are talking to uh, Holly Lawford Smith. Uh, she is a uh, can we call her a feminist? I guess we can. Yeah, feminist philosopher, gender critical feminist, a gender critical feminist, and philosopher, and philosopher. Yes, and she wrote uh, the book on gender critical feminism, for which she uh, for which a, a campaign was launched to get her cancelled. So. Yep, as I've as I've said, like you know, you should take notes because they're coming for you. Um, but they came for her first, so she's yeah. still standing. She is, and that we can hold out hope. All right, let's get into it. Holly Lawford Smith is an associate professor in political philosophy in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. Her work centres around social, moral, and political philosophy, with a particular interest in feminism, climate ethics, and collective action. She is an editorial board member for the Journal of Political Philosophy and the Journal of Controversial Ideas. Her latest book is Gender Critical Feminism, which people have tried to cancel her for, which immediately endears her to us. Holly... <laughs> Welcome to the new flesh. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you both. Holly, you're a philosopher and a published author. You've done the reading, clearly. Uh, you've actually got book books behind you, so I know you've done the reading. <laughs> uh, you're also you're involved in Peter Singer's new journal. So who better to ask the most confounding question? Is WAP a feminist masterpiece? <laughs> <laughs> it's a surprising opening question. I would say not. I would say not oh. a feminist masterpiece. But it won awards and stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, is it a helpful contribution to sexualize women on equal terms to men? It's actually a very interesting question, uh, which will probably come up later in our discussions, <laughs> because one of the distinctions between two different types of feminism is whether we're aiming for equality with men on men's terms or not. So I think if you thought yes, you might think, WAP as a feminist masterpiece. Mm. As a radical feminist, I tend to think no, uh, and so so hence my answer. Well, what's what's interesting <laughs> about that is uh, if you actually uh, search on Wikipedia, like who wrote that song, and there, I think there's three or four men listed as the songwriter of that of that work. So, oh, um, I'm not surprised to hear that. The girls are involved. The girls are involved. Like they have a, I think a they songwriting credit too. Long. Yeah. But they weren't the writers. I mean, yeah, that that doesn't surprise me at all. I don't know if you guys, uh, how uh, avidly you watch Twitter, but did you see the Tampax scandal of this morning or yesterday? They've no. they've they've um, used that meme that's between, I guess, br bros. So it's like, um, I think they tweeted something like, "You're in her DMs and we're in her," but a tampon company speaking mm. to men one-upping them on 
you're just like in her refrigerator. I think one of the ones that put, you're in her refrigerator, but I'm in her bed or whatever. It's like absolutely fucking crazy to market yourself to misogynist men when you're a tampon company. So women are, of course, kicking off about it on Twitter, and that's the thing of the day. Um, uh, it, it sounds like the Gillette uh, creative team moved over yes. to tampons <laughs> because yeah. they think their, their first idea is to go, who's our main audience? And they go, l- l- I got an idea. And it's always the opposite. <laughs> Of what they want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know who makes these decisions. And the tweet has about 300,000 likes or something. So it's not like it's had a minor impact. Um, yeah. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> I'll check out. I'm definitely going to check that uh, dreadfulness out after this. I'm going to just like, you know, I, I love Rub it, it all over it. your yeah. body. Yeah. I will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, one, one biographical note on you described you as an accidental philosopher. Perhaps you can give us a quick intro into how you found yourself studying philosophy and then focusing on on, on feminism. Cool, yeah. I can't remember who I said that to or what I meant, uh, but maybe I meant that I didn't intend to study philosophy. I think just like a lot of people, I took a bunch of different classes at undergrad and I happened to take a first-year ethics course um, and... It was the, is it called the lifeboat problem where they're like, who should you throw over? You know, you can only save a certain number of people, which I found this problem absolutely gripping um, and came up with this very, actually, like, uh, I thought at the time, ingenious argument. (laughs) But in hindsight, it didn't work at all. And I just like bluffed my, I mentioned Wittgenstein, which I'd never read, um, you know, sort of bluffed my way into what looked like a compelling. And I think for first year, it was good enough to get really high grades. I was like, I'm good at this. Um, And then, yeah, just ended up taking more and more and really falling in love with it. So, yeah, philosophy, that became a sort of a a passion. And feminism, that was definitely an accident. I've been doing moral and political philosophy for my whole uh, career, sort of since starting postgrad. And then it was only in 2018 that I started properly paying attention to feminism. And part of the reason for that is that I was actually in a very feminist philosophy-heavy department in the UK, and it was extremely off-putting. (laughs) Right. (laughs) so i went to a few reading groups and was just like oh this is like really not for me um i yeah really i didn't like it i didn't like the culture of it um i didn't like the people to be honest uh and so i just yeah kind of kept kept my distance from that and it's not like that experience has changed like i'm very much despised by the feminist philosophy establishment um but here i am caring a lot about the topic and just working on the topic anyway well, it just seems that, that they are a little bit at odds uh, in in a way, because, well, at least from the outside, because my experience of, of philosophy and feminism, I, I feel like they, uh, I don't want to say they have, they, they just have very different approaches. And I feel that, so, so do you think that this gives you an, a unique perspective? Yeah, I actually think that's so important because uh, it looks to me like they've got a kind of, uh, what what do you call that? Where you sort of enculturation would be the weak term, and indoctrination would be the strong term. When people kind of grow up in that culture, they have to do their PhD and kiss the hem of the robe of the right people. Um, yes. They're going to kind of get inculcated into a certain certain set of beliefs, and those tend to be like the the woke 
beliefs at the moment. So there looks to me like there is very little viewpoint diversity within establishment feminist philosophy. There's some people that are amazing and kind of bucking the trends, but but it's um, there's a lot of kind of what I would think is group thinking conformity. So yeah, I think you almost have to come from the outside, have basically no respect and deference, <laughs> which Kathleen Stock and I both had, right? Just like what what the fuck is going on here? And then really approaching it super critically, not minding who you piss off, not minding that you're not going to be invited to any conference ever um, with those people, and still just kind of try to like do the work. So I I think that's absolutely right that you have to be an outsider in a way well perhaps uh, you can just give us a quick genesis of your book gender gender critical feminism genesis meaning origin story for the book i used a fancy word to just say tell us about your book <laughs> <laughs> i should have said holly just tell us about your book <laughs> okay good but you mean like the content of the book um yes. yeah so i'm my goal with the book was to try to do theory of what is this new emerging type of feminism and it's mainly so that's gender critical feminism and that's also the name of the book um this is a kind of grassroots new feminist movement that's been emerging kind of in the last eight to ten years there's some signs a little earlier than that but kind of really strongly since 2018 when the uk did their consultation to reform their Gender Recognition Act. And now there's kind of very strong um, grassroots movements in multiple countries, very big one in the UK, um, fairly kind of strong one in New Zealand and Australia, emerging one in the United States and many other countries have, um, have at least some gender critical feminists and some small groups. So I sort of wanted to figure out, I guess, I was in that movement. I agreed with a lot of the um, kind of policy positions that were being put forward in that movement. But I wanted to have a better understanding of, is that a comprehensive set of ideas or can it be made into one? What's the relation, if any, with the previous um, iterations of feminism? What does it have the most in common with? So yeah, really just trying to kind of get a handle on that from looking at what its central proponents and maybe it's like, not just like it's Twitter proponents or it's Reddit or Mumsnet proponents, but it's like it's journalists and it's lawyers and it's academics and so on, you know, try to pull all these ideas together and then relate them back. So the main project of the book ended up being trying to show that gender critical feminism is a new iteration of radical feminism. So that's the previous feminism that it has the most in common with. And then just like trying to meet, mediate, is that the right word? Um, some of the arguments or disagreements with what I would just call mainstream or dominant feminism at the moment, which is disagreements over prostitution and pornography, transgender issues, and intersectionality. Well, maybe this is a great launching uh, point. Uh, so perhaps you can step us through some of the history and different strands of feminism that lead us to where we are today, because feminism today somewhat resembles sometimes like a bunch of pickup sticks uh, and <laughs> I think our listeners are rightly somewhat confused yeah. about uh, what feminism exactly is at this point. I mean, I'm confused. I thought WAP was, I thought that was <laughs> what it was at, but perhaps you can help us out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess the types of feminism that your average listener is likely to have heard of would be liberal feminism, radical feminism, 
maybe Marxist feminism and socialist feminism, and there's about another eight, um, but which don't have kind of uh, uh, big followings, you know, like existentialist feminism, somewhat out of favour now, and no one really quite knows how to use the terms post-structural, post-modern, and so on, feminism. So there's some more um, tangential types as well. M- maybe a helpful way to start, because I was thinking about how to how to tell this, would actually be to start with a distinction that is not a type of feminism, but I think helps to understand some of the differences. And that would be the distinction between reformers and revolutionaries about social change in general. So I think of the reformers as being the people who kind of think you can use the tools that we have, but try to like use those tools to make improvements for groups that are left out. So the reformers might you know, about education, for example, 400 years ago, might have just wanted like women to be allowed to get an education too, right? And so, or you could have like uh, race reformers who want uh, people of color to be allowed to have the vote in times where they didn't. Um, So one thing that's kind of noteworthy about that approach is that it's largely accepting that the system is kind of roughly right for at least the most empowered and enfranchised people, but then just wanting to make sure everyone else is fully included. And then the revolutionaries are the like, this shit is so unjust, let's tear it all down, burn it to the ground, start again. And I was trying to think who is another group that's similar to feminists in this when they have this revolutionary approach. Uh, and maybe a helpful parallel is to something like a a very uh, strong decolonization type thought, right? So the, the idea would be like, no, if you've kind of colonized a country and imposed your laws and ideas upon a people's, it's not enough to just 300 years later make sure they're fully included in that system, right? Because the idea is going to be, no, we don't want those laws in that system. We kind of want to know what would it have been like if we had equally co-authored this society together and that would be something entirely different and we would have to start again to get that so that's what some feminists think right i don't want a male authored society where men were the ones that made the whole disciplines of anthropology and economics and politics and and literature i want women's full inclusion in intellectual life and history right from the start and i want to know what would a society look like had women been fully included all along so that I think is a really important big distinction about what kind of change we want to see or what it would take to actually get liberation and justice. And so one set of concepts that tracks that distinction is like equality versus liberation. So the reformers want equality for the marginalized groups and the revolutionaries want liberation for the oppressed. And who knows what that's going to look like. Sorry, Killing. that is like a long way to set up that I think that distinction then maps onto a few different types um, of feminism. Do you do you want me to stop there before I go into that, or should I just continue uh, with my lecture? <laughs> 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 no, I, I think it's, we'll just jump in when, yeah. when 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 we when we look confused. Okay, cool. <laughs> so I think that distinction can be mapped onto at least liberal feminism and radical feminism. So I think the the liberal approach tends to be um, taking classical liberal ideas and then just trying to work to make sure that women are fully included in those. So early on, 
Uh, you had the kind of inclusion in education, but then you have the kind of attempt to get equal civil rights, equal op uh, economic opportunities, um, equal exercise of choice and autonomy. And that who would be a, a sort of a pop example of of someone who fits this mold? I would well pop. I'm not sure, but like maybe Harriet Taylor Mill, John Stuart Mill's partner, um, sure. or Mary Wollstonecraft, to someone people might have heard of a popular. Maybe Betty Friedan at, at some times would be maybe the most famous, more recent example of someone who would count as a, as a liberal feminist in these ways, although there was that TV series recently that presented her as being like a failed radical, and I don't know how. Uh, that, that was apparently based on research. The, um, was it called Ms. Ms. America? Um, I'm forgetting the name of the TV show, but, yeah, so I don't, I don't know how accurate that is. Um, but the... Then the radicals, of course, are just going to be the, the, the analogues of the revolutionaries. So Goethe Lerner, in her book, The Creation of Patriarchy, had this really nice metaphor of um, a, a play. So she talked about, like, women are fighting to get cast in equal roles in the play. But she says, you know, men wrote the script, men made the props, men built the stage, <laughs> like, and then women are up there, like, fighting for crumbs to get these cast in these particular roles. And she's just like, fuck that. Like, we want to burn that stage down to the ground and, and, and start again. And, of course, there's all sorts of different interesting ideas about how to do that, which different radical feminists pursued differently. Um, Who are the heavy hitters in the radical feminist uh, camp? So three books came out in 1970, so the movement started in the late 60s, and then these three books kind of are, I think would be the, the foremothers or the kind of mothers of the, the movement, and that's uh, Jermaine Greer, Sheila Firestone, and Kate Millett. Um, and those books were all enormously influential, uh, and that movement was kind of flourishing through about the next 20 years, and then somehow ended up getting cast as, like, bougie white... <laughs> <laughs> exclusionary, not diverse enough, blah, 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 feminism. Mm. And now it's like dead to us. Unless we can find a quote from the dead woman's husband that says she was actually trans, trans inclusionary and then we rehabilitate her. So I'm talking about Andrea Dworkin. Yeah, well, Jermaine Greer is like totally on the nose, the isn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's been cast out of, of polite society, hasn't she? Absolutely, yeah, and that seems to be the way. So the only two radical feminists that seem to be acceptable to mainstream feminism today are Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon, and in both cases it's because either Andrea died and then the husband could make up whatever bullshit he liked, and so he did that, or Catherine McKinnon, I think the way she developed her theory in terms of women's sexuality it's kind of conducive to saying that men can sometimes be in the role of women, like a raped man in prison can be kind of sexually subordinated in a way that is very consistent with her analysis of women's situation. So, of course, she can then just say, yeah, that would include some men and, and why not trans women? Um, so those two are kind of acceptable to the that's, public. That, that's a really interesting uh, analogy because doesn't that equate all women to being criminals, convicted criminals? <laughs> like, isn't it saying so anyway you're all criminals anyway you're all criminals and you go no and, he goes, and he's like don't worry about the criminal part just focus on the rape part and you go no the criminal part the reason they're in there is that they're that they've sinned they're criminals they're convicted well i think her point i think the point and i actually don't know if she's made this analogy explicitly or if it's just how i and my collaborators think about it but i think her point is you can come up with ecosystems where men divide into roles that look like 
the women man roles. So out in the wider world, you've got you've kind of got women in usually taking kind of sexually subordinated or passive positions relative to men. But in the prison system, you've got like I don't know what the beta males or whatever you could call it. Mm, Take, new fish. Yeah, and you've got new fish. You've got to, and you, what you got to do is you got to put your pocket out. <laughs> And then so, and someone holds the pocket. Did you learn this that, from television as well? That's where I yes. learned that. <laughs> it's like prison break. Yes, like, <laughs> so funny. <laughs> yeah. So I think there's a serious point there, right, which is like, yeah, maybe some men can be in the social position that we think women are in more generally. And if we make a bit of space for that, then you can just shove trans women in there as well. And I think, I don't know if McKinnon in her private time has actually thought about how stupid that would be applied to self-identifying trans women alone, who obviously are not in any subordinated social position. But I think if she can get some trans women in, then she's at least off the hook with the current like woke police. So that's sort of like a bit of a... uh... Uh, a spell you can cast to get you out of cancellation in the short term. Yeah, you just have to say trans women are women. I think, was it even Gloria Steinem, I think, was on a news segment saying something that was like waffly enough to get her off the hook. So, yeah, you do, you kind of get these, and it's so straight, I mean, this is just a tangent, but so strange to me that these women were so brave at the time during the second wave, like really risking a lot and yet today they're just like, yeah, totally trans women. <laughs> just, but what the fuck? Except Jermaine, I, I know you got you talked. No, right. yeah. meant, we mentioned about Jermaine, like th- th- that just breaks my heart because um, she was so inspiring to my mother, and um, you know I think her book's great, and um, it's it's the kind of fem- I miss that type of feminism, you know, yeah. it's sort of angry and uh, and um, I don't know, it was it's so interesting as well, and. Uh, and we've cancelled her for for ideas that I would argue are, are hopefully becoming mainstream. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and she she does deserve a lot of credit, and and for really being one of the only ones to sort of stand by that. Um, and it's yeah, I mean, m- modern feminists owe her such a huge debt of gratitude, and especially in my part of the world, right, like in Australia and New Zealand, like. Yeah, she she was an icon and she's just simply stood by her principles over the years. I mean, the piece that keeps getting shared are that she, this article, I can't remember the um, the magazine or newspaper. Yeah, she's like a little disrespectful, right? Like she calls a trans woman it in the article. So, and I know that's not the thing that she's kind of most famously pilloried for on this topic, but, but it is, it's dehumanizing, right? So you can sort of see why people will be angry about it. But I think there's this thing in the current culture where it's like you can just pile like 500 amazing things on one side of the scales and then one transgression on the other side and then you're just dead to everyone, like J.K. Rowling, who didn't you even... You can move the world, yeah. move generations of children yeah. for decades yeah. and like change the world and change publishing and, and probably do philanthropy and then you just you write this, this, this even-handed little essay and people go... Goebbels. Yeah. Go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just don't know what's wrong with people. They've just lost all sense of proportion. Um, yeah, it's really nuts. It, it might be uh, interesting to talk about inclusivity at this point. Um, mm. you, you talk about how inclusivity is is diluting what should be a woman's movement. Can can you elaborate on on this? Yeah. So I think this is really something that kind of started happening maybe as a backlash or reaction or the critics would say refinement to radical feminism. So you had this kind of move um, 
from people struggling to make, I would say, Marxism work for women and failing into radical feminism that was like, stop trying to make class the basis of everything. Let's just have a movement that's about sex itself and let's talk about women's situation. And then there was this kind of criticism of that feminism, but like, oh, like it's not talking about all women's situation. Like maybe it's diagnosing, it's talking about mothering, but not everyone's a mother, right? Or it's or it's talking about sexuality, but some women are asexual. They didn't use those terms at the time, but the sort of idea is anything they could try to say, it wouldn't be universal. It wouldn't capture women's situation. It would capture like some women or most women. And so there was this increasing kind of critique aimed at like opening up, getting some sort of category or description that would capture or speak to or, yeah, name the oppression of all women. And I sort of think that um, I guess that was well-intentioned, but then it just went wildly off the rails because somehow that turned into like every single woman's lived experience and the way that all of her other social group memberships complicatedly intersect and we somehow have to then make feminism about class as well because some women are poor and we have to make feminism about race as well because some women are brown uh, and so on and so on and so on. And once you do enough of that, even though it's well-intentioned, you just end up with this huge unwieldy, what I would say is just a, a global justice movement because once you've intersected femaleness with race, you've got all of the black and brown people of the whole world, right? And once you've intersected it with class, you've got all the poor people of the world. And now your movement is working desperately hard for every single human being in the whole world, except for rich, white, able-bodied, straight, whatever the long list is, men. So, okay, what's the point? So us, basically. Yeah, so you two are left out of this great, great... uh, We're not on the flag. You're not on the flag, but everyone else is on the flag. (laughs) <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what an unwieldy movement to work for the justice problems of the entire world and focus on everybody's lived experience. Mm. Just as an as an aside, to uh, you, you you've said the word lived experience. Now, as a philosopher, what do you make of the word lived experience and its application? Um, I find it extraordinarily irritating. <laughs> I think I probably don't know enough to be charitable on this point because I don't know what problem it was solving when they first started talking about it. I think it was a French concept that's been translated, right? So it's it's probably coming. And that to me is like the most annoying strand of philosophy is coming out of that tradition. So I'm sure someone that knew more about that could tell you, oh, like here's actually the cool thing that it was trying to do when it was first made up, but here's how it's become misused and distorted but i only know the distortion part now it's used to get film grants <laughs> yeah, i mean now it yeah. just seems to be used to be to shut other people up because it's like you cannot you're not an authority on my experience so i just get to testify and you just get to shut up um and i think that is really at least for an academic discipline let alone a kind of political movement for an academic discipline that's absolutely nuts because everything should be on the table for critique, right? And some people's claims about their own situation might be wrong. I think trans activists are wrong to think that they're oppressed. 
<laughs> and I want to be able to critique that without being seen as like, oh, you're denying their lived experience and subjectivity. Yeah, because they're wrong about it. Do you think that this idea of global, the global justice movement is illustrated by this ever-changing rainbow flag, uh, which you've written about in The Spectator? What a horrible flag. Let's just get that on the table. To start <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've got a designer background too, so and yeah. you're a fabulous oh, uh, jumpers. Thank you. Can I <laughs> Maybe I could have a go at redesigning the flag. Do you think they would <laughs> take should. that? I mean, really, it's appalling to put browns and blacks with brights. I mean, that is just a that is an audacious mm -hmm. move that did not pay off. Um, so we're going to clip that. As you said. <laughs> And that's a double goodbye to yes. you, is all I'm saying. <laughs> colours, I'm talking about colours. <laughs> yeah, you can get that ready for when they let me back on Twitter and then I'll be immediately banned again. It'd be great. Yes. Um, yeah, I think you're probably right. That's at least a good microcosm example. So we had a movement for lesbian, gay and bisexual people about sexual orientation. And then... And I don't know exactly how, but I, this is the new stuff that I'm working on at the moment, actually. The, the pairing of the, the LGB to the T and the sort of soji right stuff, putting gender identity with sexual orientation. So somehow and for some reason we added intersex, queer, and trans. And so we got to the LGBTQIA+. Some people go, go on for longer. Um, and then I don't know what the motivation is supposed to be. I guess it's like let's be very explicit that within the LGBTQIA+, there are also people of colour? Is that the motivation for the black and brown? Or, and, and, and what's the circle? Asexuals or something? I can't quite remember what the circle is supposed to be. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like there's this idea we have to kind of either be for more and more issues and take on more and more stuff, or at least we have to be so receptive to the diversity of our community. So maybe we are only about LGBTQIA+. We're only about sexual orientation, gender identity, and intersexness. But some of those people are black, and some of those people have asexuality or whatever, and so have, like it's a condition, um, are asexual, right? And so, oh, we better make sure we're fully acknowledge all that, and so we're maximally inclusive. So, yeah, I think somehow this we've lost, like we haven't properly critiqued whether inclusiveness should be a contemporary virtue that takes precedence over everything else. It's like people just assume inclusivity is good. If something's inclusive, that's good. That's really important. But we don't ask, is that really the most important thing? And what are the limits of that? And when should we make trade-offs? I think that's a really, that would be a good project. <laughs> do you think, no, I agree. And just before we move on from this, do you, do you think that this is sort of born out of, uh, because all of this is coming from institutions that have totally been captured, uh, by one side of, of politics. Every room that I ever go into, it's either it's it's center, center left, and extreme left only, yep. always. So you're you're constantly um, ceding ground to the most emotive people in the room, the most offended people in the room. Yep. The mo there's not because because the, maybe because there's no person on the other side saying, well, actually, I believe in a, ch in a child's right to live. <laughs> and then we can all, you know, with a pipe, and then everyone goes, oh, that's dreadful. And then that sort of brings everyone back yes. to the centre. Yeah. So, so uh, do you think that, uh, I mean, I just, I'm fascinated by the way, this is, this is so, um, this split focus that this um, 
idea it brings in is so silly it ruins everything like you can't just sell clothes you've got to make sure that you've got to say also oh we sell these clothes but um you know we really hate that the police killed george floyd (laughs) and then you've got to go oh we're writing this book this thriller or this drama you can't make it for its own sake you've got to solve a raft of complex problems of sex gender and race i mean do you see this as being a a bit of a a a bit of a cancer to use a strong word (laughs) yeah i mean again it's like is it well intentioned or did it start off well or but it doesn't work it doesn't fix anything it's like i'm interested in when you're in the meeting the faculty meeting yeah because you've been in these meetings and someone says oh well and we need to and they add on something why can't we just look <laughs> at that person and say yeah no that's dumb yeah like i, lo- I love i love those people you just mentioned or we're, we're going to do something about that let's talk about that after the meeting that's that's not going to help this project. We're talking about one thing today about the netball jerseys or something or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess what makes it difficult is that the, those people and Uriah have been in meetings like yesterday <laughs> with people like that. They they don't they don't know how to separate their what is their own opinion or politics, um, which of course you would then have a better sense of. It's inappropriate for me to keep inserting this into the company meeting. They don't have a sense of that distinction. What's their own politics or their own opinion from what is the absolutely obvious moral truth that they assume we all share. And that's the attitude that I kind of keep running up against, that they just universalize and they they speak as though, of course, you agree with them. And it's just such a bizarre experience. Even going to a conference and hearing a talk like that, I, I was recently at a conference and it stood out because it was mostly centrists and kind of libertarians so the the usual woke virtue signaling wasn't going on but there was one talk where someone made a casual kind of throwaway remark where he just assumed the audience also agrees with that and it stood out like a sore thumb because <laughs> we don't do that here sir <laughs> but he did it you know and it was just like oh yeah that that's so familiar in our in our working lives otherwise that there are just these you know smug leftists or something that just assume that mm. they are morally right and everyone else agrees with with them and if you were to disagree if you were to be the person in the meeting who spoke up and said yes we all care about indigenous students representation and philosophy but this meeting is not about that please shut up they would probably just call you a racist, right? Or you'd get a dis- disciplinary oh, complaint yes. or or you'd be, they'd act shocked and horrified that you don't care about Indigenous students like, for whatever the issue is for mm. each of our workplaces. So, yeah, I don't know how to, I mean, it's a really good question, how to start stopping that stuff. Um, well, we call it, we, it's our project. We call it work jitsu. And we're constantly <laughs> trying to come up with work jitsu moves like, you know, my my latest one is probably probably just start most conversations with, or, or if someone says something, you, if you want to get ahead of it, you just go, oh, it's probably a bit racist, don't you think? <laughs> so, and then they go, ah, oh, yes, very good. And then you can sort of, you, you're, you're good, you're all well, good. Well, just, just, just as an aside, there was that case very recently at, at Monash University where a, an engineering student got marked down because he didn't include a, uh, an acknowledgement to Indigenous culture or something at the start of his essay, which... Oh um, really? I didn't hear about that. Yes, that... yeah. Mm. Well, they've they've rolled it back, so they've 
you know, sort of gone back on that. But yeah, he lost marks because he didn't include that at the start of his essay. Yeah, I mean, for engineering, like it's like what you said. Like, what what has indigenous issues got to do with my essay on engineering? You know, like wow, well, what hasn't it got to yeah. do with it? Is what I would say. <laughs> well, that like I think that loops us back, right? Because again, there is this sort of good intention, or sometimes it could be appropriate. Like again, I think when the when the second wave sort of started and you had women for the for the first time or sort of for the first big wave entering into academic disciplines, it does make sense for them to be kind of haranguing <laughs> the, the male colleagues a bit about whether there are any women in their curriculum at all or whether they're teaching in a way that just assumes male students' interests but doesn't speak to, you know, like there are these things where there can be blind spots or biases and bringing in members of that group or people who are fluent in the politics of that group can be a useful corrective. The question is, what's when are you just being a nuisance? <laughs> well, Stephen Pinker would say that 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 the awkward thing is that a lot of those large battles were won decades ago, right? And that we're now we're and now we're mucking around with the we you know with a right like on the edges. Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. So it might be that that attitude is still as militant as ever but the justification for it is just kind of almost completely gone and that's why it's, it's people, annoying it's it's people who won't put down their ak-47s they're still living in the hills and they're like okay it's i'm ready and you go it's what for what what are you ready for yeah but where i mean i'm curious about where the responsibility for this lies i've been trying to think about this in the context of trans activism because it's like you go on twitter and there are like people in very influential positions that are just like what inciting, like lying and winding up these young vulnerable people to believe that they are about to be murdered, right? At risk of genocide, that everyone hates them, right? That so there's this kind of bizarre dynamic. Grooming. Yeah, grooming maybe. I don't know what it, it's like. It's it's really um, I don't know who to blame, but it's like you've got these young protesters that will show up because they hear Jermaine Greer is going to be there or your Antifa types. I don't know if you saw the photo from the States with your mm. idiot Antifa guys clad in black block head to toe with yes. LGBT flags and fucking rifles. And guns. Like guns. Yes. This just, and they're being mocked mercil mercilessly. Right. By, you know. But they probably think that they are the oppressed righteously standing up against hatred. And why? Because everyone on social media on their in their echo chamber has told them that's the case. So I just, mm. it's an interesting question, like, who do we blame for that? Yeah. And also, those protesters that come out to protest Jermaine Greer, I bet you they, they haven't even read her books, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Now, there's there's a big corporate and, and government push to have diversity and inclusion as a goal in corporations and institutions. But, but how can we have diversity if the definition of what a woman is has expanded so much that it now includes men? Uh, you know, we're also seeing cases of people identifying, say, as disabled or or even a different race, which which is actually a little bit of a problem here in Australia, where the amount yeah. of people identifying as Indigenous has apparently outgrown what is statistically possible. So, yeah. does diversity of gender come at the cost of sex? Um, yeah, I think there's certainly a risk of that happening. And one thing that's frustrating about it is that we're not collecting data to be able to answer that question, really. So uh, as far as I know, 
when we make that shift to like, well, it's self-identified sex that matters, or we're not even going to ask about sex anymore, we're just going to ask about gender or gender identity, then we, we don't really have the resources to say, oh, you know, like Unimail was hiring, for example, like, um, actually this is the University of Adelaide, they've just recently advertised a job in philosophy, and, the adverti- and it's for women only, because they've got four white men, but the advertising wording is uh, open to uh, anyone who identifies as a woman under the Equal Opportunity Act 1984 or whatever it is. And so that looks targeted at trans women, right? Mm. (laughs) Um, So only people who identify as women should apply. Okay, great. So they'll have five white males soon. Um, yes. And one of them with a wig or whatever. And and what what evidence do they have to provide as well for that 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 self identification? Well, it would depend on South Australia's uh, law, which I'm actually not sure if they've done sex self identification there yet or not. I think, if from memory, it was something like a few counselling sessions was their gatekeeping requirement. So it was not quite full self ID, but it was almost. And I don't know whether the the university would insist on a legal sex of female for a a male they might just say it's good enough if you're socially transitioned where that just means you you Mm -hmm. have a female name or you change your pronouns or whatever but of course that would be a case say adelaide does hire a male rather than a female into this female only position that would of course be a case where sex diversity um has been sacrificed for this kind of nonsense new gender ideology diversity but the question is whether the university has the means to track that because if they're now counting as a woman, this new man, <laughs> then they're just going to say like, oh, Adelaide's doing awfully well, aren't they, on gender equality? <laughs> and then they, can, they, they can't show over the years from what point in time did they start hiring men and pretending they were women uh, and how many of their women are actually women. So, And that's the case at Unimob too. Like we'd already stopped collecting data on sex for staff. We'd shifted to gender. And then last a couple of months ago, it was announced that we're doing the same thing for students. So we just don't know about sex anymore. Um, So yeah, I think you're absolutely right that we have like sacrificed the one for the other, but unfortunately empirically, we won't be able to say how how devastating that has been for women. What are the self-ID laws like in Australia? Because I think that they've sort of been ushered in under the radar, haven't they? Because I haven't heard much debate at all about what, what's happened in Victoria or, or other states around self-ID. Yeah, that's it. that's exactly right. It's all kind of happened um, very much under the radar, which I think is pretty alarming because when you look at what happened in the UK, the UK had a consultation and it blew up, right? And I think it's part of the reason that you now have this thriving, huge gender critical feminist movement going on over there because people when they found out what was going on they said no right they mm. no a man can't change his sex to female by paying $20 and making a statutory declaration that's absurd like and then he has access to every single women only space service and provision after that um but we didn't we just kind of passed these laws so i think it uh, it, it changes so i haven't looked in a while Um, I think it was something like two, I think Victoria and Tasmania both have self-ID, which is really just like there's no gatekeeping at all. You pay a small fee and you make a stat deck. Um, And I think Victoria was you can change your sex up to once a year. And Tasmania, you can register no sex as well. You can just have like nothing on the birth certificate. And then a few other states, 
two, two or three other states, it was like minimal gatekeeping. I think that was ACT, South Australia. Can't quite remember, maybe Western. Can't quite remember, but it was, yeah, like you have to get a bit of counseling. So some doctor will have to, to sign off. And then I think there was only one state, maybe New South Wales, or maybe two left that required sex reassignment surgery for, for um, legal change of sex. And of course, the trans activists will say that that's like a draconian requirement because then you're sort of forcing, they call it forced sterilization, right? Because they claim that then to get the legal sex that you really should have, you have to sterilize yourself. Um, so that always this kind of hyperbolic um, language. Yeah. So uh, I think that's really unjust that we just passed those laws like in Victoria and didn't, didn't, I think it was three months between when it was announced here and when we had time to start trying to like ask for meetings with MPs and campaign on it and raise awareness. And of course we just small number of women, just absolutely inefficacious. <laughs> like it just mm. went through. So, so you go through this process and you, you, you change your sex on your, or, or your gender on, on your birth certificate or whatever, or your passport. I mean, then, then what happens? You just, the, 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 the female space, the female world opens up to you. Does it, you can, you can apply for, you know, grants that are for females only. You can. Yeah. I'm, I'm asking you know. for a friend. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you can work. Oh, you can work in rape shelters. You can go to bathroom. You know, female bathrooms. Is that that's what you get for for changing? Yes, that's right. Um, so in the UK, it's actually a lot better than it is here because they have a separate process for recognition of gender. So you get a certificate about gender. It doesn't change your sex. And so you're, you can, they still have the, the means and there's a very specific wording about whether it serves like a legitimate aim or it's proportionate means to a legitimate end or something like that. So they can at least say sometimes it's sex but not gender uh, recognition that matters. But in Australia, we don't have that. We jump straight to change of legal sex. And once, you ha once you're legally female, which you could do tomorrow, yeah, you're female now. Everything and anything that was restricted to females is now for you. And it's even worse than that, actually, because you might think, oh, well, at least there's the small hurdle of having to pay the whatever it is, $18 and do the stat deck. No, because at least in Victoria and I think many other states, they also protect gender identity as a distinct protected attribute in the Equal Opportunity Act. So your sex is protected and you can change that but they also protect gender identity. And then they treat gender identity, this is, I think, outside the law, and they shouldn't be doing this, but they do do it. They treat your gender identity as having changed your sex. So they already would probably discretionarily let you into a women's prison, for example, when you're a male, if you say that you're a woman. Or they would already make, not make an exception. So say my favorite example is like, you're a creepy man who decides he wants to work at the women's lingerie shop doing bra fittings. And so you go in and you claim you have a woman gender identity and if they won't hire you, you put a discrimination claim forward against the shop and you can threaten to close the small business down. I think in Victoria that would work because they would say... Let's write that down. I'll listen to it later, don't worry. There's <laughs> lots of opportunities for creepy men. Um, yeah. Well, I think this, this brings us on nicely to a, a website you set up called No Conflict, they said. Yep. which um, can, can you tell us about what, what that is and, 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 and why you set that up? Yeah, so this was early 2021 um, and the idea was 
I think I just interviewed Senator Claire Chandler from Tasmania for the LGB Alliance Australia. And we got to talking during that interview about whether she knew whether anyone was collecting data on incidents or kind of issues with males being included in women-only spaces. So I, I was sort of thinking, okay, well, at least if they now let any male change his legal sex and start using, yeah, women's gyms, at least if they're kind of collecting data from that gym on how many like creepy pervy incidents have happened at the gym, then maybe in two years they can like revisit that law. Okay, it's caused all these problems. All these women are self-excluding from the gym now because of these men. And Claire said she just wasn't aware of anyone anywhere collecting data about that. And that had been my experience too. Any anytime I'd asked or tried to find out, we're not monitoring it. We're just doing it. And so you're not going to hear about the majority of things or only the really bad stuff that makes the headlines of the paper. And of course, not the leftist papers because they're not reporting on it because they call that demonizing the trans community. Right. So so we're not going to hear. So that was the idea for the for the website. I think Claire mentioned like we need to get the stories. Once we start knowing what people's stories are, we can use that to kind of lobby um, politicians to get real data collection in place. And maybe from there to even kind of change the laws or, or go back to the older laws. So, yes, yeah, so the website was a project aimed at getting anonymous testimonies from women who use a huge variety of women only spaces that have now encountered this problem of men starting to include themselves and use those spaces and, and what that had been like. Um, and of course, some people were not happy with that project. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of pushback did you, did you get? <laughs> <laughs> so funny because I did not expect pushback. <laughs> not that I expected not to get pushback, but I just like didn't think about it. I was just like, this is a great project. Let's do it. And that was all my energy was on that. And I, I can't remember the exact timeline now, but at maybe a day after I'd launched it or something, a reporter from The Age called and was like, <laughs> can I interview you about this website and I was like oh great like interesting <laughs> and yeah it turned out he was he seemed open-minded in the interview but then he published this piece like two days later oh this trans man just wants to pee you know um so uh yeah I think he but was that, actually... that's what you always you always tend to find is that people on the left go oh that's just nonsense you know the idea that that men are just gonna want to get in there and you know flash their dick or you know yeah. just just have a look at <laughs> you know at, at 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 naked women changing like that's never gonna happen well right. it, it's such a no-brainer for me I I'm I am a man and a lot of men are incredibly horny, you know, totally. so <laughs> I know. it's just, it's a no brainer. I know. I think, I think it's not, my impression is that it's not so much that they deny what men are like as that they just make this completely baseless exception for trans women. So they just think, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's men and women, but there's this like third magical category of people with gender identities and you're, if you have one, that just maybe makes you exactly like the category you identify with. The, so, but there's also this weird saintly thing about it, like like that that the trans people are perfect, or that they're so moral, or that they're you yeah. know not not capable of any sort of indiscretions or anything like that as well. Did you find yeah. that? Yeah, no, that does seem to be the view that it's unthinkable to a leftist that a trans woman would commit a male like act 
in any space or against any woman. And I think to to gender critical feminists, to anyone that's kind of allied with us, it's just absolutely baffling why they believe that. And especially if they understand what gender identity is, right? So I understand like a confused 70 year old that just thinks that trans woman means transsexual person who had childhood gender dysphoria and has had sex reassignment surgery. That's fine because they might think that's a real innate phenomenon that changes how no, they're picturing Frankenfurter <laughs> is what they're picturing. Who oh, like I don't know Frankenfurter from Rocky, Rocky Horror. Horror Picture Show. Oh, yes, yes, that's, yes. That's what they're picturing. I think that's right. I think there's a sort of archetype. And I think they find that person non-threatening. And often that person was a gay male, actually, originally. So, of course, that person is sexually non-threatening, right? They don't perceive that person as, as likely to sexually harass or objectify or rape them. Um, but I think anyone who understands the sort of mashup that's happened since then with, like, queer theory and Judith Butler's ideas about, like, queering the gender binary and you know, that there's just, there's a political movement and an academic discipline now that is generating trans and non-binary identification for political reasons, or with this idea that that's a form of authentic self-expression and gender is performance. And, you know, there's just all this other bullshit going on now. And those men, there's no reason to think that those men were not just like fully male socialized and male typical. So, yeah, I don't know what's up with the left. Like, do they just have this wrong, innate conception still and they're willfully ignoring all the evidence? Or do they just not care about women? Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, just on the pushback from, from the website for just before we move on from it. Now, I'm not being personal here because there, there, one of your colleagues was cited in the, uh, in the piece. Um, now, obviously, you don't have to say anything you don't want to. Uh, I'll, I'll do it for you. Uh, uh, but but the, the main complainer seems to be a lecturer in cultural studies. Now, wasn't it always going to be someone from that department who took exception to this? It was never going to be a Shakespeare scholar. <laughs> um, you know? I think there's a few departments that have the ideological rot, and I think that extends across, yeah, cultural studies, sociology, criminology, some of politics, actually, unfortunately. Um, and so there's a cluster of disciplines that have this kind of postmodern, um, super woke, super lived experience, super decolor, you know, like just all the things at mm. once. So you're right. All the fruit. Yeah, but any cluster of those, that ideological training people that's where it's going to come from. And I think it's noteworthy that it's always these like white knight type people. They're never in the identity group itself. They always mm. claim to speak for and on behalf of it and be crusading against someone of exactly the same identity category as themselves. Hannah is an alleged self-proclaimed bisexual in a heterosexual partnership with a baby. And I'm a lesbian and we're both white women, <laughs> right? But it's, but it's her against me on behalf of the poor, vulnerable trans community. Um, and that's a familiar dynamic. Well, while we still have you for a few more minutes, we have to dive into the controversy surrounding your book. Um, so uh, at, at what point in the process did you hear there was an issue with the book? Um, I think it was about a month before publication, if I remember correctly. So the publication date was set and I probably had announced it on my website, which 
or maybe actually even they had put the book up for pre-orders. I think that's right. I think the Oxford University Press had advertised the book for pre-orders and a few people had shared it. So I guess that's how that it came to people's attention. And yes, then there was a big flurry of activity uh, <laughs> from people who claimed to be associated in some way as reviewers or as authors or just as people getting an opportunity to show off their uh, moral goodness on Twitter. Um, yeah, piling in and try to get trying to get the book cancelled. And luckily, Oxford uh, stood firm against that, which was great. Just first, Holly, what were the claims made against you? Oh, uh, roughly. Yeah, I, I probably have to go back and check. I think um, I think they anticipated they took all their feelings and misinformation about what gender critical feminism is and stands for projected them into the book that they hadn't read and then claimed that it would be doing, you know, insurmountable harm to the trans community if it were published. It's kind of along those lines. And I think there were some claims about my status and expertise, like maybe I hadn't done gender studies, so I wasn't qualified to write on feminist topics and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but your, your publisher, Oxford University Press, they released a statement uh, that, that was actually, I, 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 you know, I thought it was great. Yeah. Uh, what was their position in the end? Yeah, they, they uh, stood by me in the end, which I thought was great. Um, so, yeah, I, I think... I think they had done the work. So I certainly experienced a lot more oversight with this manuscript than I did with my first book with them. Um, and they were both academic books. So that there would, that would need some explanation. So I think they were aware that it was going to be politically controversial and they made sure that it was kind of reviewed right to the teeth, <laughs> however you put that, and that the editors had really like triple checked it and, the wording was all right and that they were prepared to stand by it. So I think because they had done that work, um, they were confident enough. And I was annoyed about having to do that additional work at the time, but I'm happy with the result that they kind of publicly stood by it. And it would have been really devastating. I mean, it takes a couple of years to write a book. It was a pandemic, so I worked on it like this obsessive, unwashed monster you know, like really like 16 hours a day and falling right into that literature and trying to read everything. And it was such a like passion project. It would have been really devastating if they had have um, just kind of thrown that under the bus because of some angry tweets. Do you think that the the uh, Oxford University Press's statement is the only way out of these sort of emotional Chinese finger traps that are imposed by media companies these days i mean i'm talking about lobby groups or internal staff run collectives pushing for certain work to be banned or authors to be dropped or whatever what 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 should companies do do you think yeah i mean in an ideal world you would have an elon musk type approach right like oxford would have emailed all its employees and said this is what academic freedom looks like if you can't distinguish your personal opinions and politics from our work you should you should quit now Right, they should have been absolutely hardline on that because that's a really important press, and there are important principles for what those kinds of presses stand for. So they they could have done that, and they could have ignored the social media response because you should not reward bullies and tyrants <laughs> with official statements. Actually, right, like they should just be ineffectual mosquitoes biting at the ankle of a giant. Um, so the fact that it's even taken seriously, I think, does incentivize 
bullies for next time and I think it probably would have been better just to be like who cares about angry tweets like the University of Melbourne they got some angry tweets from a drag queen in Melbourne and they responded to him <laughs> this is just absurd it doesn't even have his real name this is just a pseudonymous drag queen account with about 600 likes and and yet the, the official University of Melbourne account is replying to him and offering some statement about how my views aren't their views how embarrassing. Stop it. But, right? but why, why, why are trans rights activists seemingly given a pass to be so awful while conducting themselves in these debates? You know, such oh. awful language, focused attacks, yeah. stalking, threats of violence. And, you know, a lot of them, yeah, don't, don't have that many followers on Twitter or they're not, they're not uh, you know, anyone in any sort of authoritative position. Yeah. Um, some, some other groups, if, you know, if they were acting like this or saying the same sort of stuff, they would be erased from public life. Like, why do we give just a, just a free pass to these trans rights activists? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm completely baffled by it as well. I just, I don't get it, and I don't get why people don't just say no to it. It's genius. I think I, 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 we've been saying this since we started this uh, podcast, that the, the tactics, the, the rhetorical tactics that they're using and, and should be studied. It's brilliant. I agree, yeah. And I've actually often thought they're like a bot, that's how it they they steal the language of the the just social movement. So you know the mm. the Black Lives Matter movement or some feminist. They use the same discourse about real oppression and injustice, and then they, they and then they, they 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 put it to the use of what are essentially like middle class white men, uh, and it's worked. Mm. And I think maybe that's just because people are not. And this goes back to the lived experience thing, right? People are not comfortable pushing back on claims about personal identity and experience. People don't know how to call bullshit on those claims. So if someone says me being misgendered has hurt me so much that it's equivalent to like being in a terrible car crash, you have to have some guts to be like, shut up. It's <laughs> just, that's insulting to car crash victims, right? Like, and sometimes people try, like you see Jewish people commonly on Twitter saying, fucking stop appropriating Holocaust language to talk about your gender identity. And then they get called transphobic instead of them winning and calling the trans activists anti-Semitic, which they are, right? So it's like, so we just, we need to learn how to, to call bullshit on that stuff, I think. Yes. Well, what's, what's your experience been like in the academy? Have you noticed over your time a more censorious attitude take hold or, or is this a, a, a beat up, so to speak? Um, I think people are more scared on particular topics. Um, so I definitely think on things around gender and things around Indigenous issues in Australia. Those are the two that I've noticed um, where there's really like fear around being socially ostracized or alienated. Um, and I think that's true of staff as well as of students, but you kind of notice it in things like tutorials. You just won't get an open, comfortable discussion on those kinds of like identity touching topics or everyone's really desperate to have the right view and you have to fight really hard um, to get students to kind of express disagreement. And I have like a range of tactics that I'll use. Like if I want them to talk about, so I teach a course in feminism and I want them to talk about sex versus gender identity and which one takes priority and if we need both. And I just like assign them, like you have to defend this. So there's two groups, 
you guys are arguing that sex matters, you guys are arguing that gender identity matters, and then we're going to come back together and fight. And then because they have no responsibility for the fact that I have forced them to say sex matters, then you get a good discussion, right? Mm. Because they're not worrying, oh, someone's going to tell on me on Twitter or I'm going to be ostracized. Yeah. Yeah. But do you still get much pushback from students? Like, like even though you segregate them like that and, and sort of make them argue for positions that they might not hold personally, I mean, do you still, do you get students that go, I'm not arguing for that because, you know, that doesn't align with my beliefs or whatever? Um, no, I think, I think for two reasons. Uh, one is that I think there's like enough awareness on campus now about who I am, that there's some self-selection going on. So I think usually people who take my classes already kind of don't mind like a bit more of a heterodox approach. That's not true of everyone. I've certainly known students to kind of not know or to like find out halfway through the semester when word starts getting around. Um, But I think that helps a bit. And then I think just like having built, because usually I put the controversial topics last or kind of in the last week. So then we've built up a lot of like, camaraderie and they're sort of more comfortable with each other and they trust me more um and then i think uh it it tends to go okay i have had things get emotional certainly and to sort of try to like manage that between people that are disagreeing um but so far it hasn't happened in one of my classes that it's like had one of the terrible types of like blue hair activists just be an unreasonable asshole that hasn't happened yet Mm. Yeah. Well, I think one of the other problems is that there is this fear because everyone nowadays walks around with with a surveillance device like on their person, like they they could record you, they could you yeah. know take a video of you. Like I was teaching um, once, I went on a rant, and a student said to me after I'd gone on it, uh, it was it was a positive one, but still really impassioned or whatever. And they said they were sitting there and they said, "Oh, I should have recorded that." <laughs> like they said it, and it was not ironic. It wasn't like. Um, you know, and, and that really, I don't know, that, that terrified me. That wasn't something I, I thought yeah. was on the cards. No, exactly. And it shouldn't be on the cards, right? Because you, you should have a right to speak freely in the classroom type settings. Um, I, this is the social media mindset, right? Like everyone coming in sort of with an eye to their TikTok following. Like, stop it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not, this is not a space for that. And our university, thankfully, has a pretty good strict social media code so if a student recorded someone else without their knowledge and consent and that would mean the the consent of the whole class in a tutorial they could be disciplined for that oh that's Um, great yeah Mm, and we try to make that known and i make it known because teaching controversial stuff you you kind of have to so that does provide some security at least for the students getting kind of like outed or called out or doxxed or whatever well, um, I have a question for, well, we haven't asked about Twitter. Are you, you presumably you are not on Twitter? Well, I got banned um, in, what was that, 2018 or 19, I can't remember, um, for hateful conduct, which uh, was there, well, who knows, but uh, they said it's the hateful conduct policy. They didn't show me the tweet, the final tweet. But the two, I think you get three strikes. And the first two, one was a misgendering and one was talking about biological sex with a trans person. Um, and both of those wow. tweets are up on my website if people want to go and adjudicate my morality. I think that they were not a violation. The second one was not a violation. I don't know what the third strike was. 
I've appealed it probably a hundred times in the last several years. <laughs> well, now's the time to do yes. it. Yeah, I yeah. know. You are being you are being mentioned. There's a lot of love for you online, but you're in a list of people that I sent Ricky this list. It was someone. Yes. Twitter posted just the other day said bring back these people it's like Megan Murphy and and you were on a list uh, of people. Oh yeah, so, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, I think I saw that tweet, and some of those people have been reinstated, like James Lindsay, which is very exciting. I mean, if they're bringing back conceptual James, <laughs> yeah. then you need to come back. He's yes. unrepentant. Well, so. I think the thing, my impression of of what's happening is that they are doing it. Um, that it's like word of mouth. They're bringing back the big famous people with the high mm. followings because people mm. are mentioning them, but they haven't yet worked their way through the appeals or found a way mm. to kind of like group unban people. Mm. Um, so my sense is like either a big shot yeah. eventually will have to, a blue tick will need to get Elon to see the reply and then he'll do it I'm all. I'm a blue tick, mm. an $8 one. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks very much. I'll do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, John shared shared this amazing photo with me. It's like uh, it's sort of like a group shot of the people working at Twitter before and after Elon Musk, and the first one that. before. It's like it's all white women, <laughs> and then the the after Elon Musk is Nerdy taken brown over. And Asian guys. Asian yeah, men. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's it's brown and Asian guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that too. Um, now I do have a question from Twitter. We'll let you run in just a second. This is uh, I, I creeped on a, on a on a thread, and Sal Grover says that she wants to know if your book is uh, going to have an audiobook version. Yes, it is, but I haven't heard from them for a while. There was a little um, so I got the like, congratulations, we've chosen your book to be one of our audiobooks. And then there was a little scuffle over whether I could be the audio voice because I think it's better when the authors themselves are their mm. voices mm. and they refused. And I, I believe that was probably Kiwi, Kiwi accent discrimination. Right. So you're not going to get <laughs> N Nicole Kidman or someone like that to do it. Oh, I didn't even try. I just wanted to read my own book. Um, <laughs> but then they sent me some options and I chose someone with a British, a British female. Um, Authoritative. An authoritative kind of mm. low voice like um, mm. she seemed cool but I haven't heard anything since then so who knows how long that's going to take and when that'll go up well that's good well any, either way I am, I am I is it okay if I let them know that it might be happening oh yeah I think you can say it is happening but who knows when and I can actually also just send Sal some files because I recorded the book for a girlfriend at the time um, so she, yeah, I was going to say, if you were, if you said no, that you weren't doing this, I was going to say, this is a perfect example of you not, not taking into account women with women with newborns, <laughs> women is, you know, this is just another example of turfdom. White run feminism. Ramp. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll send her the files. Um, it's like not exactly edited to the final version, but it's good enough. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we do have a final question that we ask all our guests, and that is we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Oh, um, I'm reading a children's book. <laughs> I just finished the most amazing novel, which was called Cloud Cuckoo Land. Have you heard of it? No. It's like a mashup sci-fi slash historical novel slash uh, love letter to, to literature and librarians and Greek philosophy. It's really uh, surreal and bizarre and cool. And Anthony Dewar. Yes, Anthony Dewar. Absolutely, like, amazing, phenomenal book that I just, like, okay. hugged when I finished it. And clearly it's not woke. It's not woke. It's just not even, you wouldn't think 
of it in those terms. It's just well, that's great. A great book. Mm, great. I'd love uh, to hear that. And then I'm reading a children's book now because I wanted to. My godchild just started reading Harry Potter and found it a little bit scary. She's seven. So I'm trying to find cool fantasy type children's books that aren't scary. So I've read a bunch of terrible children's literature in the last few weeks trying to find that. Oh, they're always orphans and there's always an awful scary man. And mm. okay, so I'm reading just one like at life. the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. gonna, like shield that for a little while, right? So yeah, so that's what I'm reading now. Well, Holly, I, I feel like we've only just scratched the surface here. We'd, we'd love to have you back some stage to, to chat more. Yeah, this has been super fun. Thank you. And I'd love to come back. Wonderful. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time. You did run over today. Thanks so much, uh, Holly. Cheers. Oh, wait. Where can people find you online? <laughs> In your work. Before, we, before I L- stop. Lucky I didn't hang up, isn't it? I know. We do get some people, they just go, bye. bye. Yeah, it's gone. <laughs> and I go, oh, I really liked your, your work. Um, where can people find me online? I I have a website, Holly, I think, is that right? Hollylawford-smith.org. You're asking me? Something like that. (laughs) I feel like, uh, let me just check. I think that's that's true. I did have it open before. Hollylawford-smith.org. That's right. And if Elon brings me back to Twitter, I will be at HLS, which is A-Y-T-C-H-E-L-L-E-S-S-E, which is how you spell my initials, initials, inspired by Eminem back in the... 80s or whatever it was um and that's and youtube i have a youtube channel called feminist heretics where we do a bit of like second wave uh radical feminist chat type stuff and i have a personal channel as well excellent well we'll include uh links to all of that in our show notes thank you thanks again holly okay bye bye Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.